0: Base here. Landed. Welcome to a History of the Space Race podcast, Episode 2, Sputnik. On the last episode, I left off with the launch of Sputnik on October 4, 1957. Sputnik was a shock to the world. The Soviet Union had given no indication that a satellite launch was imminent. People also presumed in the 1950s that the United States was technologically more advanced, which it was indeed in many areas. For example, the United States had detonated the world's first atomic bomb, it had superior electronics, and it had a head start in rocket development after seizing most of of Nazi Germany's rocket technology and retaining top rocket engineers like Werner von Braun. It was therefore a surprise that the Soviet Union got to space first. But being in space first was not the only surprise. The Soviet Union demonstrated a far greater ability to lift weight into orbit than the United States. You see, the United States at that time was talking about launching maybe a 5 or 10 pound satellite for the International Geophysical Year. Sputnik was 180 pounds. On November 3rd, 1957, the world was surprised again when the Soviets launched Sputnik 2. This was a whopping 1100 pounds, and carried the first animal into orbit. For this episode, I'd like to focus on how and why the Soviet Union decided to launch a satellite and how they were able to do that before the United States, despite the United States technological advantages. To understand what happened, we must begin with the end of the Second World War and the start of the Cold War. In the United States, we often view the Soviet Union as the next grave threat after Nazi Germany. But that was a rather ridiculous notion from the Soviet perspective. The war ended with an American monopoly on the nuclear bomb. The United States had a vast strategic bomber fleet to deliver these bombs. The United States stationed these strategic bombers in allied nations that ringed the Soviet Union from the United Kingdom to Turkey to Japan in a policy of containment. From these allied bases, the United States could drop a nuclear bomb on every major Soviet city. By contrast, the Soviet Union did not have the nuclear bomb until 1949. Even when it did, it had no comparable strategic bomber fleet. and. The Soviet Union had no allies in the Western Hemisphere to station those bombers to threaten the continental United States. Although the Soviet Union could threaten Western Europe with conventional armies, this was not really comparable to the existential threat it faced in the event of nuclear war. In an effort to achieve strategic military parity, the Soviet Union prioritized the development of the world's first intercontinental ballistic missile. With an ICBM, the Soviet Union would be able to drop nuclear bombs on the continental United States without the need for strategic bombers or allies in the Western Hemisphere. It could threaten the United States with nuclear annihilation in the same way that the United States was threatening it. Responsibility for developing a Soviet ICBM eventually fell to Sergei Pavlovich Korolev. Korolev was an interesting character to have been given this responsibility. He was, by training, an aerospace engineer and had dabbled in rocket clubs early in his career. In the 1930s, he worked in the Soviet Union's Aircraft Design Bureau. By all accounts, he was a rather promising engineer. In 1938, however, Korolev became a victim of Stalin's great purge. This was a frightening time when people were encouraged, many under torture, to denounce one another as conspirators and traitors to the communist regime. The atmosphere might be likened to that of the French Revolution under Robespierre, or the Chinese Cultural Revolution. During the purge, Korolev's superiors were arrested and executed by the Soviet secret police, or NKVD. Korolev's colleague, Valentin Glushko, was then arrested as well. Possibly under duress, Glushko accused Korolev of anti-Soviet activity. The NKVD then fabricated charges against Korolev, Among the charges was an accusation that he had destroyed an experimental rocket plane, notwithstanding the fact that the plane sat very much intact on the floor of the aircraft design bureau. Korolev was sentenced to 15 years in the Gulag. He faced almost certain death because he was to serve the sentence at the Kalima labor camp in Siberia. Kalima was the most brutal of all Soviet labor camps. During the Second World War, for example, an estimated 2 to 3 million people died there. After a few months, Korolev's friends managed to have him re-sentenced. Korolev was sent to a less severe labor camp and put back to work designing aircraft. He was still officially a prisoner until 1944. At that point, he became a deputy designer working on special engines. His boss was Valentin Glushko, the same colleague whose accusations got Korolev sent to the Gulag in the first place. As Nazi Germany collapsed in 1945, Korolev was one of the engineers that the Soviet Union sent into Germany to seize German rocket technology. The German V-2 rocket factory at Nordhausen fell within the Soviet zone of occupation, but American forces reached the factory first and seized most of the equipment before turning the area over to the Soviet Union. The top rocket engineers, like von Braun, also surrendered to the Americans rather than the Soviets. Korolev was put in charge of restoring limited V-2 production with whatever resources remained. Although the Americans had taken the bulk of the equipment, materials still remained for Korolev. There were enough spare parts for the Soviets to build about a dozen V-2 rockets. Moreover, lower-level German rocket engineers refused to abandon their homes. They stayed in the Soviet zone of occupation and hoped for the best. These individuals became a valuable resource for Korolev. Within two years, the Soviets began launching copies of the German V-2 rocket. These were dubbed the R-1 in the Soviet arsenal. Korolev extended the range of the R-1 with some modifications. This resulted in the R-2. Korolev then began work on a new rocket, the R-3. The R3 would include a new rocket engine and novel features to significantly improve lift. The R3 would then serve as an intermediate-range missile and a stepping stone to an ICBM. But the attempt to create a new rocket engine with novel features introduced many technical problems. With time, the problems probably could have been resolved, but Korolev did not have the luxury of time. Failure to deliver an ICBM could result in renewed allegations of anti-Soviet activity. As a result, Korolev took a more conservative approach to improve the range of rockets. He returned to the R-2 design and modified it further to create the R-5 in 1953. The R-5 had a range of 1,200 kilometers and could carry a nuclear bomb. Though the range was short of an ICBM, this was progress that bought Korolev more time. In 1953, Korolev also began working on a full-blown ICBM, dubbed the R7. For this rocket, Korolev once again adopted a conservative approach to avoid the mistakes that led to the abandonment of the R3 he would not attempt to design a new rocket engine with super heavy lift. Instead, he would cluster a greater number of less powerful rocket engines to achieve the overall lift needed for an ICBM. This decision led to a characteristic feature of Soviet rockets, which flare outward at the bottom in a conical shape to make room for the additional engines. By contrast, American rockets would maintain a cylindrical shape due to early research investment in heavy-lift engines. With heavy-lift engines, the United States did not need to cluster less powerful engines to create the necessary lift. The Soviet Union's failure to commit to researching heavy-lift engines at this early stage would contribute to its ultimate loss in the space race. But, of course, The Soviet Union's concern at this time was not a race to the moon. It was securing the nation's safety as quickly as possible. The United States, meanwhile, had a more lackadaisical approach to developing an ICBM. The United States began designing an ICBM in 1946. The project was cancelled, however, amid post-war funding cuts. With fleets of strategic bombers, ICBMs simply weren't necessary. A strategic bomber was designed to drop its payload within 1,500 feet of a target. There was no technology that could guarantee that an ICBM could achieve the same standard of accuracy after flying thousands of miles. Even with a warhead as powerful as a nuclear bomb, the ICBM miss its intended target. The United States outlook began to change in 1953. The outbreak of the Korean War in 1951 led to a general increase in military spending. This permitted a resumption of research into an ICBM. The United States also developed the hydrogen bomb in 1953. A hydrogen bomb is so powerful That an ICBM carrying one of these could destroy its target even if the missile significantly missed. Thus, by 1955, development of an ICBM became the Department of Defense's top priority. This, however, was years behind the Soviet Union, which consistently maintained research into an ICBM as a top priority. Meanwhile, back in the Soviet Union, Korolev was mulling the use of the R-7 missile for space exploration. To be clear, the sole purpose of the R-7 was to serve as a delivery vehicle for a nuclear bomb. The Soviet military specified that the rocket should be capable of carrying the exact tonnage needed for a nuclear warhead. But Korolev recognized that the missile could have other applications and he had an innate interest in space exploration. Korolev's interest in space exploration and the possibility of future manned spaceflight can be seen in his early rocket experiments. For example, on July 22, 1951, he launched an R-1 missile with two dogs, Desik and Saigon, up to an altitude of 101 kilometers and he successfully retrieved them. Thus, the Soviet Union became the first nation to retrieve living organisms from outer space. The United States accomplished a similar feat with mice two months later. In 1953, Korolev tried to obtain permission to use the R-7 for a satellite launch in one of the government decrees approving research into the R-7. There were two reasons for Korolev to seek approval at this time. First, American scientists had recently proposed a satellite launch as part of the International Geophysical Year. As a result, Korolev had support for a satellite launch from scientists in the Soviet Academy of Sciences. He also had backing from engineers such as Mikhail Tikhonravov. Tikhon Ravov was a friend of Korolev's and had gained some prestige for developing the Katusha rockets during the Second World War. Tikhon Ravov had already suggested as early as 1948 that a satellite could be launched using a multi-stage rocket, but he was ridiculed for the idea at the time. Korolev also sought approval for a satellite launch because Stalin died in March 1953. This led to general confusion in the top levels of Soviet government. Stalin was a secretive man. He kept critical information, especially about the nation's rocket program, only to himself. The result was that senior government officials, including Stalin's eventual successor, Nikita Khrushchev, were initially in the dark about the nation's rocket program after Stalin's death. Korolev tried to take advantage of this momentary confusion by amending the decree approving research for the R 7 to include a proposal for a satellite launch. Korolev's amendment was rejected, though the government did approve theoretical research into a satellite launch. Meanwhile, in 1954, American scientists began lobbying their government to support a satellite launch during the International Geophysical Year. I only vaguely alluded to this in the last episode, but when the Eisenhower administration decided in 1955 to support an IGY satellite, this led to an internal debate as to how an American satellite should be launched. There were two principal proposals, one by the Army and one by the Navy. There was also a third proposal by the Air Force, but this was eliminated at an early stage and need not be discussed. The Army's proposal to launch an American satellite was called Project Orbiter. Under Project Orbiter, an IGY satellite would be launched using a modified Redstone rocket. The Redstone was an Army rocket developed by Werner von Braun and his team at the Army Ballistic Missile Agency in Huntsville, Alabama. This approach had numerous advantages. Mainly, the Redstone was already a proven rocket in mass production. But Redstone was a military rocket, and using it to launch a satellite could reveal the rocket's capabilities to the Soviet Union. There was also some concern about launching a satellite using a rocket made by former Nazi engineers. This was not, however, a significant factor in the deliberations. The Navy's proposal was called Project Vanguard. Under this proposal, the Naval Research Laboratory would develop a new rocket, the Vanguard rocket, purely for civilian and scientific research. The benefit of this approach was that little to no information about the rocket launch would need to be classified. Moreover, a rocket designed specifically for scientific research meant the rocket could be designed with the possibility of future modifications and uses for other scientific purposes in mind. It represented more opportunity for scientific growth. The downside, of course, was that a new rocket had to be developed. This would take time and money. The Eisenhower administration chose to go with Project Vanguard. This decision, the selection of Vanguard over Orbiter, is the central reason why the Soviet Union was able to launch a satellite before the United States. If Orbiter had been chosen instead, an American satellite could have been launched probably as early as 1956, a full year before Sputnik, if not earlier. Understanding the Eisenhower administration's choice is therefore crucial, and there were several reasons for Eisenhower's choice. First and foremost, President Eisenhower wanted to establish a freedom of space under international law. At the time, the United States wanted intelligence on the Soviet Union's military assets. The CIA had tried to gather this information through various covert schemes. One included launching weather balloons with cameras over the Soviet Union under the guise of scientific research. Another was the use of high-altitude U-2 spy planes, which flew inside Soviet airspace. Both these options obviously violated the sovereignty of the Soviet Union. President Eisenhower hoped to establish a principle that travel in outer space, even when in orbit over another nation, would not constitute a violation of sovereignty. This would permit the open and legitimate use of satellites as an intelligence gathering tool. This would be like the use of warships to gather intelligence on an enemy's coastline from international waters. Getting the Soviet Union to accept freedom of space, however, could be tricky. Government think tanks such as the Rand Corporation and the Beacon Hill Group suggested that Soviet opposition could be overcome by launching an innocuous satellite first. This satellite should only be for scientific purposes and should fly in equatorial orbit so that the Soviet Union would have no chance to object. If no nation objected to the passage of the satellite overhead, a principle could be established in favor of the freedom of space under international law. This was the reason for President Eisenhower's support for launching an American satellite during the International Geophysical Year. To emphasize the peaceful and scientific nature of the satellite, President Eisenhower insisted that the satellite should not be launched with a military rocket. Instead, the satellite should be carried aboard a purpose-built scientific rocket. This would permit information about the launch to be released without being classified. For example, the mass, velocity, and launch time of the satellite could all be shared. This information would be useful to scientists to determine things such as the density of the upper atmosphere by calculating the drag on the satellite. In fact, this is exactly what scientists tried to do with one of the rocket boosters that carried Sputnik into orbit, though there was some guesswork involved because the Soviet Union did not release certain information, such as the object's mass. Another reason to favor Project Vanguard over Project Orbiter was to avoid an arms race in space. President Eisenhower was conscious of the dangers of perpetual military spending. He was known to be fiscally conservative, and some would say frugal, with the federal budget. He tamped down on military spending where he could, and he would later famously bemoan the growth of the military-industrial complex. As a result, Eisenhower wanted to ensure that the Soviet Union would not interpret an American satellite launch as an effort to militarize space. Otherwise, this would lead to another round of massive military spending. This was another reason to launch the American satellite with a purpose-built scientific rocket. Finally, President Eisenhower did not believe the United States was in a space race. This is an important point. In the post-Sputnik criticism of Eisenhower, there is often an assumption that America was trying to be first in space and failed. There was certainly an assumption by many the United States would be first simply because it was more technologically advanced than the Soviet Union. But being first or reaching outer space as quickly as possible was simply not a goal. The United States' announcement that it would launch a satellite as part of the IGY on July 29, 1955 finally caused the Soviet Union to approve a satellite launch as well. The Soviet government informed Korolev that he could use the R-7 rocket for a satellite launch whenever the R-7 was ready. The Soviet military emphasized, however, that the R-7's military uses should be prioritized. Work on a satellite launch should not come at the expense of making the R-7 an effective weapon of war. This was similar to the position of the US Department of Defense, which insisted that Project Vanguard could go forward only so long as it did not delay military rocket programs. In 1956, Korolev seized an opportunity to obtain firmer support for a Soviet satellite launch. On February 2, 1956, Korolev successfully tested a nuclear-tipped R-5 missile. This success won Korolev the attention of Nikita Khrushchev, who decided to visit Korolev's design bureau on February 27th. During a tour of the facilities, Korolev awed Khrushchev with a full-scale mock-up of the massive R-7 rocket. Korolev then mentioned that the rocket could carry a satellite significantly heavier than the puny five-pound satellite that the Americans were preparing for the IGY. Khrushchev understood that Korolev was suggesting a propaganda coup over the United States. He asked Korolev how difficult a satellite launch would be. Korolev downplayed problems converting the missile into a satellite launcher. He insisted that no harm would come to military research. Khrushchev is said to have told Korolev, if the main task doesn't suffer, do it. With Khrushchev's approval, Korolev became obsessed with launching a satellite as quickly as possible. This was understandable. Korolev had promised a propaganda victory. The propaganda victory was only possible if the Soviet Union was first in space. He would lose considerable political capital if the United States beat them there. Korolev became especially worried in late 1956. On September 20th, 1956, Werner von Braun conducted a demonstration launch of a four-stage Redstone rocket. The purpose of the launch was to show definitively That a Redstone could lift a satellite into orbit. The development of Vanguard was not necessary. The Redstone demonstration was so successful that if the fourth stage of the rocket had been a live rocket rather than a dummy payload, the United States probably would have placed a satellite into orbit that day. In fact, Korolev thought it was a failed satellite launch attempt, which led him to believe that the United States was close to a satellite launch. He did not know that Von Braun had been specifically ordered not to launch a satellite. Another source of anxiety for Korolev was a growing delay in readying the Soviet satellite. Responsibility for the Soviet satellite fell to Tikon Ravov. Tikhon Ravov built a rather complex satellite. It had instruments to collect eight types of scientific data, including the survivability of an animal in orbit. The satellite's complexity and the relatively low priority given to it by the military meant that the satellite's construction fell behind schedule. Korolev wanted the satellite to be ready as soon as the R-7 was ready. As a result, by the end of 1956, he reduced the Soviet satellite to a simple spherical object with four whiskers and a single scientific instrument, a radio for tracking. This would become Sputnik. Tikhon Ravov's design would later be launched as Sputnik II. Meanwhile, Project Vanguard in the United States was proceeding smoothly during 1956 in early 1957, considering the project's circumstances. As I mentioned, Project Vanguard was treated as a secondary priority. It would not receive the same kind of resources as the Department of Defense's military rocket programs. If Vanguard needed any facilities or equipment required by a military program, the military program would receive them, not Vanguard. Vanguard was also rather thinly funded, a problem not helped by the fact that the cost of the program soared as soon as it began. Moreover, the Vanguard project received funds through the Department of Defense. The DoD, however, was often slow to fork over money for non-military programs. The result was that the Naval Research Laboratory, or NRL, handling the project, often had to slow work until funds arrived. A concrete example of the problems that NRL faced can be seen by their efforts to establish a test range for Vanguard. The obvious choice for a test range was Cape Canaveral, known then as the Atlantic Missile Range, where the Air Force managed the test range for military rockets. Initially, no space could be found at Cape Canaveral for Project Vanguard. Eventually, though, the program did negotiate a shared launch pad with an Army missile program, which was not yet ready to begin testing. But then, the Department of Defense refused permission to use tracking and telemetry equipment at Cape Canaveral because the equipment was in use for a military missile program. As a result, NRL had to spend more funds and more time setting up its own tracking equipment. Despite these difficulties, Vanguard was making good progress in late 1956 and early 1957. I'm going to take a little diversion for a moment to give background on rocket development in the 1950s. Vanguard was designed as a three-stage rocket Multi-stage rockets like Vanguard have multiple segments, each with its own engine and fuel. As the rocket rises, it jettisons stages. With less mass, the rest of the rocket can rise to higher altitudes. The engine for each stage can also be optimized to perform in specific environments, such as the thin air of the upper atmosphere or the vacuum of space. Development of multi-stage rockets in the 1950s was cautious and incremental. Each stage was tested separately. Once each stage was tested independently, they would be stacked together in an all-up test. The all-up test would confirm that the launch vehicle works as a whole. This stage-by-stage testing was time-consuming and subject to delays because of the number of test launches required and the problems that can arise with each launch, such as weather delays. I will preview here that this manner of stage-by-stage testing would be revisited during the Apollo program. In 1956 and 1957, NRL was following this incremental approach to test Vanguard. In December 1956, NRL successfully tested a single-stage rocket. This launch was mainly to verify that the new telemetry and tracking systems at Cape Canaveral worked. In May 1957, NRL successfully tested a two-stage rocket. This launch was to test the third stage of Vanguard by launching it as the second stage of this rocket. At this point, by 1950 standards, NRL was doing extremely well with two successful launches in a row. But then, the Vanguard program ran into problems. The third Vanguard launch was to test a new rocket engine. But the contractor, the Glenn L. Martin Company, delivered the engine knowing it had problems. The problems could be fixed. But the contractor needed more time. Rather than holding up delivery and risk delaying the launch schedule, the contractor sent the engine to Cape Canaveral. Contractor and NRL personnel at the site would then perform the necessary fixes. But now the engine had to be worked on in a new facility without the tools that were available to the contractor on the factory floor. Technicians had to run to the hardware store for items as simple as nuts and bolts to fix the engine. Problems mounted when engineers found dust, dirt, and metal chips inside the engine. These problems led to a series of delays in August and September 1957. The third Vanguard test had to be pushed to late October, by which time events overtook Vanguard. On August 21, 1957, Korolev conducted a successful test of the R-7 rocket. With a rocket at the ready, Korolev proceeded with the launch of a Soviet satellite. Initially, the Soviet Union selected October 6, 1957 as the launch date. Korolev asked that the launch date be moved up two days. He had been following the International Geophysical Year. He knew that October 4th was the last day of an IGY conference on satellites and rockets in Washington, D.C. He feared that the United States was planning to launch a satellite during the conference. The Soviet government agreed to move the launch date forward. Thus, on October 4th, 1957, an R-7 rocket lifted off from Teruritam and placed Sputnik into orbit. Soon, even amateur radio operators could hear these beeps coming from the world's first satellite. You can also hear this sound in the opening theme for this podcast. The public reaction to the launch of Sputnik in the United States was shock. Politicians and the media asked how the United States had allowed the Soviet Union to be first in space. Questions arose about the adequacy of America's education system. Many criticized President Eisenhower for insisting on a purely civilian and scientific satellite program. This insistence unnecessarily delayed an American satellite because a new rocket had to be developed. Moreover, the program was not given the same priority as a military rocket program, and there were accusations that the program suffered from President Eisenhower's penny-pinching. How fair were these allegations, and how did the Soviet Union beat the United States into space? The answer is a combination of a push-and-pull effect. The Soviet Union had pushed the creation of an ICBM as quickly as possible. Korolev then pushed for a satellite launch using that ICBM as quickly as possible. For Korolev, being first in space was critical. He wanted to highlight the possibilities of Soviet space science to obtain political capital for further space ventures. He could only do this by giving political leadership a propaganda win by being first in space. He had no qualms, and neither did the Soviet government, about using a rocket designed for military purposes to launch a satellite. In the United States, President Eisenhower was pulling back an American satellite launch. Although the United States had the capability to launch a satellite using a military rocket, Eisenhower emphasized priorities other than being first in space, namely, how an American satellite should be launched. It should be done only under conditions that would establish a legal principle for the freedom of space and avoid sparking an arms race in orbit. This push and pull of events meant that the Soviet Union accelerated toward a satellite launch while the United States was slowing down. The result was that the Soviet Union was first in space even though the United States had the capability to launch a satellite months, if not years, earlier. The launch of Sputnik, however, totally changed Eisenhower's analysis. First, the Soviet Union itself had helped to establish a legal principle for the freedom of space. Because the Soviet Union had placed Sputnik in an orbit that passed over the United States, The Soviet Union now could hardly object if an American satellite passed over the Soviet Union. Eisenhower's main reason for supporting an IGY satellite now appeared moot. Second, Eisenhower was caught off-guard by the public reaction to Sputnik. The strength of this seasoned military veteran and former Supreme Commander of Allied Forces was the inability to be phased by setbacks. His weakness, conversely, was the inability to appreciate the psychological impact that setbacks had on others. After Sputnik, Congress and the public demanded to know when an American satellite would be launched and what Eisenhower was doing to make that happen. When Eisenhower responded calmly that America would launch a satellite soon and no special effort was needed, he was accused of complacency and being out of touch. In response to the public's clamor for action, the president's eye turned to Project Vanguard. Here, I think we must have sympathy for those working on Vanguard. Vanguard had been thinly funded, treated as a secondary priority and handled like a poor relation among the family of rocket programs undergoing trials at Cape Canaveral. But now, Vanguard was in the spotlight and expected to restore national honor. I imagine that those working on Vanguard must have felt something similar to what employees at the CDC felt at the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. After having their funding for pandemic preparedness, repeatedly cut for over a decade, they found themselves at the center of attention and expected to save us all. NRL briefed the White House on their progress toward a satellite launch. NRL explained that they would be performing an all-up test of the Vanguard in December 1957. In other words, this was the test to determine if they had a working launch vehicle with all three stages of the Vanguard rocket. The purpose was not to place a satellite in orbit. In theory, however, if all three stages worked as expected, a satellite could be put into orbit. The rocket on this launch would carry a small satellite, but NRL considered this to be a bonus satellite because the purpose of the launch was to test the launch vehicle. After NRL's briefing, the White House announced NRL's plans to the press. The press immediately ran with the headline that Vanguard planned to launch an American satellite in December. Meanwhile, the Army was chomping at the bit for a chance to launch a satellite. The Army Ballistic Missile Agency and Werner von Braun had never gotten over the rejection of Project Orbiter. After the launch of Sputnik, von Braun began preparing for a satellite launch using a Redstone rocket, even though he had no orders to do so. But that changed after November 3rd, 1957. The Soviet Union surprised the world again with Sputnik, 2. Within a week, President Eisenhower ordered the army to prepare two missiles for satellite launches. With two Soviet satellites, Eisenhower no longer felt constrained to launch an American satellite with a scientific rocket only. Launching an American satellite as quickly as possible to calm public reaction was now the top priority. Still, President Eisenhower did not want to flaunt the use of an Army rocket. The Army planned to use a variant of the Redstone known as the Jupiter-C. For purposes of the satellite launch, however, the rocket would be called Juno-1. This was to disassociate the rocket from its military origins. Moreover, Vanguard remained primarily responsible for launching a satellite. The Army would have a chance to try only if Vanguard failed. On December 6, 1957, NRL proceeded with the first all-up test of Vanguard. The test was under heavy scrutiny because the press had portrayed it as the American satellite launch attempt. This turned out to be unfortunate. The rocket rose only 4 feet before falling back down. The fuel tanks then exploded. The satellite was thrown clear of the blast and began transmitting from ground zero. Statistically speaking, the failure was to be expected in 1950s era rocket development. The very public failure, however, made the Vanguard program an object of ridicule. For failing to restore American pride. NRL immediately prepared a backup vehicle for a second launch. Weather delays and engine problems, however, caused them to pull the rocket back from the launch pad. It was now the Army's turn. On January 31st, 1958, the Army's Juno-1 rocket lifted Explorer-1, America's first satellite, into space. The United States finally answered the challenge of Sputnik. Next time, I will talk about America's continuing response to Sputnik, the creation of NASA. Interested in seeing photos related to this episode? Check out space Race com or click on the link in the description for this episode.